Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We're going to take country. We're out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. We killed, though. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He hauled me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. For today's bonus episode, I spoke with Hugh Rimmington. Hugh is an award-winning journalist, humanitarian, news presenter, and foreign correspondent. He is a Foundation board member of Soldier On, which supports Australian defence personnel who have suffered through their service in recent wars. In his 40-year news career, Hugh has been shot at, blown up, threatened with deportation, and thrown in jail. He has reported from nearly 50 countries, witnessed massacres in Africa, wars and conflicts on four continents, and every kind of natural disaster. It has been an extraordinary life, captured in Hugh's new autobiography, Minefields. Hugh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Great to be on your podcast, Alex. We'll be referring to it quite a bit as we chat, so I'll say it up front. Congratulations on the release of your book, Minefields. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hugh, before we get to your own extraordinary career reporting from the front lines of war zones, you've got some military history in your family. Oh, only slightly. I wish it was a bit more colourful, but my mum was an officer in the Royal Air Force and my granddad was a, uh, a Royal Naval captain. Uh, so like, I think like most of us, there's a, um, there's a military history. There was a, a great uncle or someone who uh, served at Gallipoli uh, on my mum's side, but others are certainly far more embedded in, in military life. Well, I'm looking in the book at a picture of your mother in her flying officer RAF uniform, and she looks born for it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, in those days, it's actually a lesson from World War II. They found that uh, nurses who were essentially attached to uh, the military, not having rank, were, were not afforded, particularly by the Japanese, were not afforded any status um, at all. So a decision was made, so I understand it, to give nurses in the RAF and other forces a military, or if they were captured in a war, they would get uh, more respect than, than being treated as civilians. And, and I think that's why my mum, who was keen to travel and keen to join the forces, as her father had done, uh, became an, a flying officer without ever really getting on the pointy end of the plane. And uh, during your childhood, you still grew up with uh, war as a present factor, besides your family heritage, in that you uh, would have grown up seeing TV coverage of the Vietnam War. Yeah, such TV coverage as there was. I think it's interesting because my father was under German occupation throughout the war because he, he grew up on the island of Jersey, which was invaded in 1940 and wasn't actually liberated until after Berlin fell in 1945. So um, he had that sense of it. My dad spoke a little bit of German as a consequence of that experience. And then the Vietnam War was around when I was a kid growing up. But the TV coverage of it, I was growing up in New Zealand at that stage. Um, I, I can't remember a lot of vision of it. I remember when a New Zealand soldier died they went through a protocol where the newsreader would come on and say a soldier is, you know, a New Zealand soldier has, has died in Vietnam, and then the screen would go to black, and then up would come the the name and the details of the uh, deceased soldier, 
and then that would disappear and, and the screen would stay black for a few more seconds and then up would come and then in a very solemn music would keep going. So that certainly made an impression on me as a kid, but uh, I was probably too young really to grasp it much. But uh, quite rudimentary as well compared to the sort of depths you'd be going to later in your own career. Absolutely. The technology was much more primitive there in terms of putting you into the, into the middle of wars. And, and that thing, you know, the Americans were much more, they sort of talk about Vietnam as being the first television war. And I think it certainly was for the Americans. It might have been to a lesser degree to the Australians, um, you know, or, or to a significant degree. But in New Zealand, where I was growing up, you, you really were uh, a, a few behind the music, I think. The book is quite open about your younger years, growing up in New Zealand, and you know you have some troubled times as a teenager, but you essentially stumble into journalism. It's not a calling from a young age. Absolutely not. So I was working as a hospital cleaner as a 17-year-old. Um, I was a drunken, depressed kid. Um, I'd really lost my way in my middle teens, and, uh, and I think it was a mental illness issue. I, I, I put it in there because I thought that somewhere there's a 15-year-old boy who might... Um, you know, read a book or be told about the book. And I think it's important that, that I'm honest. I was honest about the fact that I was a somewhat lost kid. Uh, otherwise, it all sounds like just glorious adventures, etc. But a consequence of that was I was working as a hospital cleaner and um, uh, with no great prospects. And, and I happened to meet a radio news director who mistook me for someone who'd applied for a job. So he started interviewing me as if I've applied for a job. And, and I sort of realized what he's doing. And, and I, I just managed to stifle the, I don't want to be a journalist, but he's talking about, because I was working as a hospital cleaner. I was actually cleaning rat cages in the animal lab attached to the hospital. So it wasn't a glamorous job. And I thought, well, maybe I should have a crack at this or answer his questions. And he hired me. Glad he did. And some other poor bloke out there never got that job interview. That's right. Some, yeah, that's right. Uh, there's some nameless poor soul who might've turned up half an hour later. I'm here for the interview. Too late. The job's gone, son. <laughs> We'll get back to that uh, sort of honesty you mentioned, because um, you're right, the book, your book is very honest, very raw, and you do obviously apply that to your reporting style throughout your career. I'm going to skip ahead and sort of jump to your first frontline experience, as it were, which was, of course, the Fiji military coup. Yeah, so, I mean, that nowadays we're kind of almost used to the notion of military coups in Fiji, but in 1987 it was, everyone thought of Fiji as being, you know, like this paradise you know, happy people in palm trees. And so the news that there'd been a military coup was quite a shock. I got to fly in there only because I, I was, I happened to live near the radio station and I could race home and grab my passport and no one else in the radio stations at 3AW Macquarie in those days in Melbourne. Um, and I could make the plane, the one flight out to Fiji that day. So, so my foreign trouble shooting career really owed itself at its, in its origins to the fact that I lived close enough to work to grab my passport. These are the way things work sometimes. That was my first experience of seeing uh, balaclavered soldiers plainly breaking domestic law and breaking their own constitution, marching around with uh, with weapons. I didn't even know what they were. They were, I think, M16s, actually. But, the, um, but I didn't know anything about that stuff at that time, taking over a government, taking a government hostage, and then ruling the streets. And, uh, and over time becoming um, quite threatening towards reporters who were there trying to report it back home. So you stumble into journalism and then you stumble to being a foreign correspondent, as it were. Yes. Yeah, so look, I think, I think one of the things about life is that it is full of 
unexpected events <laughs> and that's the nature of life and sometimes you know you get lucky and and to be honest i think on some level you know i was totally up for it without necessarily thinking about it or contemplating how it might go i was really interested and curious about how things were so i had situations i i did have one situation where i went in with the cameraman into a into a, uh, a coup it was a later coup in fiji as it happens and that particular once a guy there started waving around a gun this bloke really felt uncomfortable to such a degree that we had to actually fly him home and find someone else to come in. So, it, you know, some people take to it because something about it, it, it challenges them and is fun for them, I suppose. Uh, and I was certainly one of those. But, but you know, I, I guess not everyone quite sensibly wants to do this kind of stuff. Did you, though, feel that similar fear of that cameraman on a later trip? I mean, you uh, make the headlines yourself in that Fiji coup. That must have been pretty scary. Well, I was arrested at night trying to file a report, uh, and a bunch of soldiers, a squad of soldiers, walked in on on me as I was trying to file the report and and bailed me up at gunpoint. I was on my own. I was a radio reporter, had no crew around me, and they they were shutting down out of the hotels, I was shutting down the phones. And so it was getting harder and harder to file. So I'd gone off and found a public phone and I was filing about midnight and I got bailed out at gunpoint, cut it off and then thrown briefly into a jail cell. Um, But I have to say that others at the time, including Peter Cave, the ABC correspondent and Red Harrison, uh, a former ABC man who was there as a BBC correspondent, they were bailed up against a wall with a firing squad. And there was an argument as to whether one of, the, one of the soldiers in the firing squad said, look, there's too many witnesses here. Those people over there can see what we're doing. And so just as they were about to be shot, they were then bundled onto trucks and carted out into the forest and lined up against trees. And then another member of the firing squad said, look, I, I haven't got a written order. I, I want a written order before I shoot these guys. But all through this, Red Harrison and Peter Cave really did think they were, they were seconds away from getting a bullet through them. So, um, you know, there was a certain intensity to that Fiji coup, even though some people couldn't imagine anything uh you know happening in such a benign place as fiji it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't an easy run it's uh yeah it feels a bit bizarre to read in the book the scene where you've sort of got the wires strewn and you're trying to get the signal off and you're frantically at the last moment telling the person at the other end what's happening as the soldier comes back to get you it's uh people today would not associate that with fiji of course we're more familiar with the coups there today, but it's not the first thing you think of when you think of Fiji. No, look, I think one of the things which it really brought home to me is that when the rule of law has been abrogated by men with guns who are free to act um, according to their own chain of command and their own political ideas, then at that point, the rule of law actually counts for something. And the minute it starts to break, all these things that we consider are the, you know, the immutable uh, scaffolding of a society, in fact, collapses really quickly. I've heard others say that, you know, the fabric of civilization is, is a millimeter thin. And and you really do get in a sense that once laws don't matter um, and guys with guns are setting their own laws, then some people in those environments um, suddenly find themselves in the environment they've always wanted to be in and start throwing their weight around. And, uh, civilization in a sense breaks down very quickly and and so many people in the world at any given time are living under those sorts of conditions and that's 
that's been one of the insights of a reporter's life, I guess. Well, you get to see that fabric of society being rewritten and starting afresh only a couple of years later when you're off to the Berlin Wall after it falls. That's true. So um, I was too junior reporter to be sent there as it came down, but I quickly scrambled around to what was then still the East German consulate in Melbourne and got myself a visa and w- raced into Berlin so that I could be there. They were still bashing away at the walls with you know, sledgehammers, et cetera, chipping it all away. And, and I clambered up a, um, a, a now abandoned, I, I sort of crossed Berlin, you know, the, the line which so many people had died trying to cross. Um, I scrambled through a gap in the wall and, and actually clambered up into a machine gun nest, machine gun tower on the East German side. This is just literally weeks after the, you know, the entire Eastern Bloc had had this earthquake had gone through and changed it all, the political earthquake of it, and sat in this, you know, clambered up into this machine gun tower and sort of gazed down at the crossing. It was quite bizarre. Again, that, you know, there's probably been two or three enormous events that have happened in my lifetime, which just shift the world. 9-11, I suppose, is certainly another one. But, um, but the fall of the Berlin Wall has had such consequences that we still live with and that we're still, in a sense, readjusting to. Those are the great hinges of history. Well, that particular hinge of history moved you at the time to say to a colleague, sort of, oh, what am I going to do, report on now? Quote, all of history has happened. Yes. Well, that's true. You always had that sense because I was sent not long after that to the London Bureau for Channel 9. And, uh, and I arrived there in uh, tail end of 91. So going into 92, and, and Robert Penfold, who's still the LA-based correspondent for Channel 9, wonderful uh, reporter, great mentor, but after a few months, I looked around, I was doing a share of royal stories, and I, and I said, mate, I think history's all happened. You know, the Soviet Union has collapsed, the Berlin Wall has fallen, the first Gulf War had happened. And he said, uh, stick around, son, stick around. <laughs> well, history does continue, and Australia participates in a series of peacekeeping missions, our first overseas deployments since Vietnam. You cover some of these, including Somalia and Rwanda. Let's start with Somalia, where you literally walk into a minefield shows you how naive we were really the um so the australian battalion was sent in to cover uh an area based on baidoa which was in central somalia a desert town fundamentally and it would they called it the city of death because in all of somalia and god knows somalia had gone through hell then it still is now but baidoa had the highest death toll in this time One hundred and seventy thousand people had died in the previous six months in in really quite a small desert town I turn up there and I see just at the back of where the sort of dusty base was, base is too grand a word, but where the Australians were, it's basically just a, a, a camp. Uh, I see a, a big crop of mature, uh, you know, some sort of grain crop. I didn't know what it was. It turned out it was sorghum. Uh, who knew? And I thought, well, I'll go down and I'll, I'll do a piece to camera down there and, and I'll make some profound statement about how this is why we're here so these people can feed themselves. So I march off into these heads of whatever the grain is. The cameraman stays a distance away because it was about a shot for him to do it, you know, from a distance. And uh, so I've marched on in there. And, and, and I, uh, while I'm there, there's a, there was a track not far away headed into town and a bunch of Somalis start to gather and they all seem to be giggling and smiling. And I kind of think, well, there you go. You know, white guy looks a bit absurd here with a TV camera. Never mind. And the cameraman says to me, Matt, I think they're trying to tell you something. So I look back over towards them and one of them is sort of indicating with his hands, towards my feet, pointing at my feet and kind of going, boom. And I suddenly had this absolutely cold feeling. I remember it, this feeling like ice water has landed in the crown of my head and just 
in a moment just flooded through my body. And at the same time as I realized that came the thought that why in a, in a place where 170,000 people have died in the last six months, is there a full grain crop that is unharvested? It's obviously a minefield. And, uh, and then I had to find my way out of it, which there was no science to that. I just, I couldn't see my footprints going in. I didn't do any clever things. I'd never been trained in terms of getting out a, a big pen or something and start poking around to see if there was a safe path out. I thought, look, I walked in here casually enough. I just had to try and walk out casually. And if it blows, it blows. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And, and luckily for me, it didn't. But um, there were a whole bunch of mines in there that they came out and cleared later on. That's absolutely amazing. And uh, we're glad luck was on your side that day. Yeah. You also recount a truly horrific scene in Rwanda, and I'm going to quickly quote your book here. Like a brown rushing conveyor belt, dozens, scores, hundreds of bodies flowed beneath us. All appeared naked and hideously bloated, an endless piteous soup of lost humanity, silent proof of the horrors taking place upstream. Malcolm Fraser and I stood a little distance apart, saying nothing more, trying to absorb what we were witnessing. The genocide would continue for another two months. Yeah. It was awful. I'd gone with Malcolm Fraser because I bumped into him in Pretoria at the time that uh, Mandela was being inaugurated. And I went there to interview him about Mandela being inaugurated and whatever it was, just get a few grabs from him. And he said, look, I'm going up to Rwanda tomorrow. Will you come with me? And, and, I, and I said, yeah, look, I will. And so I'd flown up with him and we couldn't get into um, Kigali, the capital, uh, but we could get up to the Tanzanian border. And then we were going to try and going across the border. As it turns out, there was a bridge there, but the Tanzanian troops wouldn't let us take our vehicles across. So we started to walk across this bridge. And it was only as we walked across the bridge, there was some sort of height, a bit more like a sort of a gorge. The river was a bit like a gorge. And so you, as you started on the bridge, you didn't actually see the water. But then as you, as you walked out on the bridge, you looked down and go, my God, my God, look at that. And, um, and it, it's astonishing what happened there. You know, that there was 600 to a million people were killed in three months. Um, just shot, hacked, uh, just, you know, that, that people have done the sums and said that the actual rate of killing was faster than the worst levels of the Nazi Holocaust. Uh, and, and it wasn't industrialized as the Nazis did it. It was just simply the slaughter that had taken place. And I went to Kibeo the following year when, sorry, not Kibeo, I went back to Rwanda the following year and into Kigali when there was the Kibeo massacre, which was the one which was witnessed uh, to their great cost by 32 uh, Australian troops who were there as a medical team and a little infantry unit to support the medical team. And, uh, and they saw uh, this appalling slaughter of, of possibly up to 8,000, the final count is contentious, but maybe 8,000 civilians for the most part who were just slaughtered in Cabello camp. And, uh, and that's a part of Australian military history, although there have been books written about it. It is so not understood. Uh, it's not recognized what those people went through because it's almost impossible to talk about without it being disturbing beyond belief. Well, I can't imagine how disturbing beyond belief it was. The military troops that are there, I don't know if you can truly train someone for it, but they are prepared for it. They do go through intense training and they have a strong support network of debriefs and that kind of thing. You're a civilian, you're a journalist going over there, and any training you have accrued in that sense is just through experience of going to these places over and over. How do you deal with that as a young journalist? 
Yeah, well, I'll say a few things about that. I'm not sure that the debriefing is all that good within the ADF. And I think there are a whole bunch of cultural reasons for that, including the fact that uh, it is in the nature of soldiers and defence personnel not necessarily to talk up too much any sense of psychological disturbance they've felt from what they've seen. Uh, that you know they're conscious of their own careers and and they're conscious of not looking weak and various other sorts of things. So that's that's a difficulty. And the other thing about, for example, the Cabello massacre was one of those who was in that group was Paul Jordan, the SAS uh, trooper and a friend of mine. And he said at that stage, very you know few of those people who were who were assigned to that Unimir mission had seen a dead body before. They were really peacetime force and. And yet suddenly they were seeing people, women and children, you know, children getting macheted in front of them and, and, and hacked up, many dying, many of them with these horrendous wounds that they were trying to patch up. There's no, I don't know that there's a form of preparation you can make for that. No. So I didn't actually witness the massacre itself. I came in after that and I met them basically in Kigali as they were coming out in the capital and they went to their own base. And I saw some of the, the victims that they tried to rescue, and I spoke to some of the troops who were there. Not all of them were really in a position to talk. They, you know, some some were happy. To, some spoke. You couldn't shut them up, and other ones you couldn't have got them to open up and talk. And I've stayed in contact with some of those over the years, and and there've been some sort of, you know really substantial damage done to some of those men and women, which they've borne up with with great courage. So, um, how do you prepare for it? You really don't. And some things happen that are deeply shocking and disturbing. And, you know, it, it's going to have an effect on on anyone on some level. And I think we have to recognize that that is the case. It's absolutely human to have a reaction uh, when, you're, when you're confronted with some of those things. Well, you want to take this confrontation or sites you've seen and bring that story home uh, so the Australian public knows what's going on. And I, there's a moment in your career, I think it is shortly after that time on the bridge with Malcolm Fraser, that you discover you have to present these hard stories that's uh, suitable for 6pm family dinner news slot. Did you find that difficult to sort of present the stories in a particular way, not as honestly as you might have wanted to? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you, you find is that uh, reporting a story seeing something and then un- trying to understand it, those themselves are quite difficult. You've got to get in there to see it. You've got to somehow survive that experience. You've then got to understand it so that you know actually what it is that you're talking about. Then you start to then file it back to your audience. And when you're seeing massacres and all kinds of other things going on, um, what you then bump up against is the producers of the TV show saying, Man, we don't want to see that sort of stuff going on at six o'clock. People are sitting down to dinner. And you realize that you have to find a way to tell stories which get as much of the of the truth of what's happening but not such that uh, either the audience or your first gatekeeper i suppose is the producers say mate we're not we're not we don't want to see this stuff you know it's just too disturbing so don't give it to us and and so you have to get smart in a certain way and realize that you, you must find a way to to take the edge off the story sufficiently so that they're palatable i suppose while not so much so that people have got no way of knowing actually what, what it might be like. Uh, so I sort of developed my own theories about how to, how to do that. But it's a hard lesson when you go into a tough place and, and, you, and you've got a story and you really want to tell it and, and, and it sits on a shelf because, you know, there's nothing worse, to be honest, than that. Yeah, to try and balance the truth and substance of what you saw by also 
meeting the commercial imperative so it gets out there. Yeah. It's um, clear from reading the book that for you, frontline reporting, it's definitely not a glamorous lifestyle or and it's not the exciting ego boost. It's very important to you, a vocation. Is there a particular moment in your career that you decided what I'm doing really matters? Look, I think it happened progressively. I think it, yes, it happened progressively over, over a period of time. In fact, right from the beginning, I remember the first thing I covered, which was a major disaster, actually, was the Erebus uh, plane crash when a DC-10 with 257 people on board crashed into a mountain in uh, Antarctica. And I was, as it turned out, I was the, the first person in Australia to learn that the wreckage had been found simply by virtue of the fact I was standing next to the telex with message came through from uh, Antarctica that they'd, they'd spotted some wreckage. And, and I think way back then there was a recognition that actually news, most of which is on a day-to-day basis filled up with fairly inconsequential things, nevertheless, from time to time, is the most important commodity around. People need to know, and they need to be told straight. But the most important thing is to, is to tell it straight. And so from that point on, and then again and again, there also becomes a duty to, you know, I found particularly in, in the field, uh, like, for example, I went up to South Sudan. I, I, I was with a group of people. We bought 876 slaves, for example, and freed them. And we went, we, we, we sort of traded for these human beings such that we could then get them out and free them. And, and in the course of that, I spoke to some of these enslaved people and interviewed them. And it's funny how the people their own stories, no matter where you go, people particularly who are having a very, very hard time of it, their stories are sometimes the only thing they've got. And they, they value just their own experience. We all have our, value our own stories. And the fact that someone sits there and listens to it and then communicates it to some other audience who they will never know or see, nevertheless has some value in encouraging and in bringing us all in some sort of strange way a little closer to each other to sort of shorten the distances between us as human beings. And I, and I think there is, there is real purpose and value in that. And it's a privilege to be part of that process. It's not all war zones and disasters for you though, as part of that process. In 1993, you had a respite and got to trod old battlegrounds instead. How did it feel to cover the return of Australian veterans to the Western Front? Oh, this was just an amazing experience, and I'm glad you raised it because uh, it's one of those elements in the book that many others don't, uh, but it's one of the most treasured stories, if you like, that I covered. In, in 1993, uh, Paul Keating was Prime Minister, and he made a decision to uh, gather together veterans of the Western Front, it would be the last time, and take them on this mission for the 75th anniversary of the end of the First World War. I think they brought together 14, from recollection, 14 actual veterans who'd been in the trenches in the Western Front, who are still alive. Their average age is about 97, and, and a group of war widows. And over a period of two or three weeks, they arrived in Paris, went up around those grave sites, the battlefields where they fought. Um, and to stand with these men who had that direct personal experience of Pozier, of Fromel, of these astonishingly awful human cataclysms, really, and who had come through and lived to great age and to try to communicate what that meant to them, to see them at the grave sites of mates, um, kneeling besides grave sites of old mates. Um, and in one case of his brothers, one of these veterans' brothers who died, you know, so many decades previously, 
these are deeply moving moments in history and one that you know if you could you would wrap them up you would keep them forever you know they'd survive so much you wanted death to leave these guys alone they'd, they'd, they'd earned a pass but of course over time you know they all went and but to have met them and to, to have met them in that circumstance is just one of those awesome humbling experiences the way you describe that it rings a bell to me very strongly because we're facing the same situation now with our World War II veterans 20 plus years on. Absolutely. You know, age, you know, the old ode gets the words quite right, you know, that uh, there is a going down of the sun. And, and you know, my father was, uh, as I said, under German occupation as a teenager. He's now, uh, next month turns 89. So those who, who fought in it are basically in their 90s at least and uh i think in some ways we have a better understanding about the second world war it was more a geographically much more widespread event and there are lots of ways in which you can if people care to do it you can go and understand aspects of the second world war but the first world war trench warfare in particular was such a moment in history that happened where the capacity to um essentially defend ground Trump the capacity to attack overground, and the munitions that were available were at a certain level of lethality, and yet there were no cameras in there to bring that other effect. I'm sure if there were cameras there, the First World War would have ended in two years, and there would have been just revolts against it, and there would have been forced people would have been forced to sue for peace uh, much earlier. But while it could stay, that awful event could go on essentially out of sight. Um, then it, then it just it, it continued into the charnel house that it was. And it's, it's funny because I think that one of the great people go along about the media and, and how it's, you know, it's no good and it stuffs everything up. But I think the camera has made the world a safer place because by and large, it is harder and harder for political leaders and military leaders to justify events where there is wholesale slaughter um, Maybe I'm being too optimistic here, but I think uh, I think that has had an enormous force for human good uh, because it's hard to unsee things. And then once you've seen terrible things, you have to act to try to stop those terrible things continuing. I agree. Politicians can't allow today the amount of casualties and loss we suffered in the two world wars because the camera is there showing the voting public. This is what we're putting our fellow Australians through and they just won't stand for that level of atrocity. The threshold's much lower. I think we could talk for hours chapter by chapter, Hugh, but in the interest of time, I'm going to jump ahead a bit. Post 9-11, Australia is no longer limited to peacekeeping. We are now at war. And when our troops go to war in Iraq, you do too. That's true. So I was sent in by Channel 9 to uh, basically, into Baghdad, uh, with the team to try to s- survive through the invasion phase and to still keep reporting until, you know, as I was described, the, you know, the American tanks roll up the main street of Baghdad. Uh, we were the last Australian TV crew still in there. Everyone else had been pulled out. We were hours away from the shock and awe bombing campaign. And then my bosses lost their nerve and they pulled us out, which was a, a bitter, bitter experience i thought it was a poor judgment at the time and i still do i, I don't want to give them a hard time about it <laughs> you know my views strongly enough but um and and then we had to get out across country into jordan and then fly into kuwait and then come back in again which you know my sense of 
safety was such that if you know a landscape reasonably well, I mean, you bank that pretty well by then, you can survive in an area where you know where we'd establish safe houses and other sorts of things much better. The most dangerous thing is to travel across country that you don't know, but that your enemy knows. And um, that's, that's increased the risk. They weren't making us safer. They were, in fact, increasing the risk, and we were trying to come back in again that way. I didn't see much of the Aussie troops on that occasion simply because of where they were deployed. Basically, was out of sight, really, for us. But um, it did make me, you know, when I got back from that, and I complained about it, them pulling us out when they did, and, uh, and they said, look, no, no story is worth, you know, risking your life. And I thought that was a poor argument. I thought that, no, if you're going to cover wars properly, you have no option but to risk your life. You can't do it from a bloody armchair, you know, somewhere else. You've, you've got to go there and see what's going on. And, uh, and so that's why, much as I love Channel 9, and I had great gratitude to this day for what they gave me, I, I felt it was time to leave, and I went off and joined CNN because they were, I felt, much more serious about, uh, about really trying to understand what this huge war, particularly in Iraq, was about. And, and they reported it from the ground. So I was able to go back in again and report. Um, it wasn't my full-time job for CNN, but, but as part of being a reporter and a news presenter at CNN, I did get to go back into Iraq and report from there. And that was a great professional experience. And you were fully aware of how dangerous it was to your personal safety. Uh, there's a great scene in the book where you're training up on your combat first aid skills. Yeah, so you know, with, with, you know, TV networks had, had cottoned on to the fact that, uh, that you can't just send uh, civilian journalists into war zones and expect them to know what to do or, or how to even assess danger. Uh, so you know, the hostile environments courses, which were being run by special forces, ex-special forces soldiers and other kinds of people, they were, they were useful. And you learned, um, you know, you started to learn a little bit. I learned a bit just, just by being in the field, I suppose. But it's always good to learn more. You can never learn too much. Uh, so, yeah, we were getting more trained up. CNN did them. And uh, in fact, CNN used to do them in Australia, oddly enough. So the training here was rated as being very high. Uh, so that was part of it, and I certainly always paid attention to the, uh, the the trauma medicine type of thing because I always had this feeling that if a cameraman went down with a you know with a shell wound or whatever the hell, uh, the worst thing in the world at that point would would be to feel completely helpless to help them. That that would be no good at all. So I always paid close attention to that in the hope that if it ever came to it, I might be able to save a colleague's life. And then your last war zone is Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm delighted to have been able to go there. So I left CNN to come back to Australia and, and I, came, I went and spoke to, the, uh, to people in defence to show the kinds of stuff that you're able to shoot when you were embedded, say, with the US troops in Iraq for an American-based network, the freedoms that you had to report it, um, the risk that you, you took um, as a reporter, the fact that you didn't have, you know, a, public affairs officer bouncing from foot to foot next to you, telling you what you could shoot, what you could ask, what you couldn't ask. So um, they gave you these great freedoms. And I, and I thought it was useful for the ADF to get an insight into that experience. And uh, they encouraged me, and I didn't, to be perfectly honest, need any great deal of encouragement to go to Afghanistan um, on an embed, which I did in 2011. So that got me into Afghanistan, and, and, and a lot of people have got very negative, journalists have got very negative reports about their experiences on these embeds. I think possibly because I had had this experience, I think possibly also because I think Angus Houston was the chief of the Defence Force in 
and he had encouraged my interest and encouraged me going there. I got great support from Major General uh, John Cantwell and uh, then uh, Commodore David Johnson, now an admiral, and also from the um, uh, RSM Don Spinks. They gave me fantastic briefings, and and in the course of those briefings, I it was plain that the most active combat outpost at that stage was uh, Mashal up in the Baluchi Valley. And I said, well, can you get me there? And they said, yeah, we'll find a way to get you there. And so I was able to go up to Cop Mashal in the Baluchi Valley. We, even as we pulled up, uh, the place was under ambush. There was a there was a big sort of standing shooting match against the tree line as we were sort of coming in, which gave us a chance to get some nice specky sort of combat shots. And, uh, and we'd go out on foot patrol with them and, and troop around. And I just had the greatest sense of admiration for uh, those, I say those men, there were men I patrolled with, but there were two women on the base as well. Um, and, um, and, and also for their leadership, because Michelle was being led by a then 26 year old captain called Nick Perryman, Pez Perryman. And, and I, I just was just so impressed by his leadership skills and just the way he led from the front and, and just even, you know, the, the rifleman scouts, the engineers, uh, the people who are out there taking risks at a time when they were having 80% contact rates so four out of five times they went outside that wire, they were into a contact. Uh, so that was, that was a pretty active little um, uh, zone there. And I've nothing but admiration for the people who were there. It's frightening odds. And that war zone is, as I said, you're last, and then you hang up the proverbial flak jacket of journalism. Yeah, of that kind of journalism. Yeah, so I, I was—I've been hired to do politics, really, and, and you know, and I still had a fair bit of overseas travel for me, but it was—it was mainly in a political uh, setting, and um, you know, and I, and I would love to do more. I've got three young kids now, primary age kids. Uh, there's, that's a sort of a disincentive to be constantly living that travelling world and constantly getting exposed to the, sh- the shocks and the jars of of that stuff. But I think also the other point, which is kind of underlying it all is that the kind of journalism I did is, is, is getting harder and harder to find because the money is just simply not there. The, the digitization of the media has meant that the, the revenue streams, which came in from advertising are now finding other places to go to. And, uh, and it's much harder to justify, you know, just sending, you know, keen crews off to wherever it is. And, uh, you know, it still happens, but less than it did. So, um, so, you know, I think I, in many ways, I think I probably had the best of it. Um, but, uh, so I'm grateful for that. Well, at the end of the book, you reflect how much journalism has changed due to information technology. I wonder, what do you think of the potential of new media to capture these stories and the truth of them in a way you necessarily couldn't for the six o'clock news. Yeah, look, I think one of one positive effect of of this whole, you know, the Twitter world and all the rest of it is that you can get access to people who are serious players, um, who are having a, you know, a good hard look at um, whatever the conflict zone might be. Let's call it Syria for the sake of the argument, or, or what's happening right now in uh, in northern Iraq, you know, with the Kurds and so on. Um, and their independence aspirations, all these kinds of things. You can get access just by following them on Twitter uh, to good thinkers in this area, and in some cases, people who are putting stuff out. But you can't make a living 
unless you've got a separate source of funds, it's very hard. Some do, Andrew Cruelty can do it, but, but you have really, really good to be able to make a living out of reporting from war zones as essentially a freelance hand and also assuming that you know what the hell it is that you're talking about. So I think we are losing that, if you like, somewhat neutral voice in conflicts, you know, the, the one who is a disinterested spectator to at least some degree in what's going on. So most people who, are, who have got a view, say, of what's happening in the last days of Raqqa under Islamic State or, or wherever it might be, are, have got some stake in it. So you're either getting some jihadist group is putting out their version of events or others who are there because they're being funded you know, and supported by some other entity, whether it's, um, it could be a UN or an aid agency or a military force or some other thing. So that notion of having some sort of well-funded, self-sustaining, independent, rough, you know, you could argue about is anyone ever independent, but that's the theor- theoretically independent voice in there reporting what's going on, and particularly about, say, things that might matter specifically to Australians. Uh, that's going to be harder and harder to sustain. Well, you were a spectator on the front line with our Australian men and women in uniform for many years. How have you seen our military change over time? Well, I certainly think when I first went in there, and uh, the first time I was with the Australian military was in Somalia in you know January '93, and that was a force that hadn't Vietnam was was a generation before essentially, so they were still learning what they were doing. I thought they did a pretty bloody good job actually. David Hurley was the lieutenant colonel there went on to become chief of defense force as we know and governor of new south wales he, he was a pretty good officer you'd have to say one of the interesting stories about say the rwanda unami mission was they were so naive in 194 when they were preparing to, to go off in late 94 to, to get that mission together about what might the demands be that because it was a all forces all services uh, deployment uh, they were the guy in charge of it i think it was a brigadier was trying to pull all this stuff together and uh, and he was getting from each of the services their most broken down bits of equipment because they were saving their best equipment for the big exercise, whichever the hell it was, uh, that was coming up because it was on the big exercises that officers proved their mettle and, uh, and secured their future promotions and impressed their leaders and all that kind of stuff. And a mob going off to Rwanda, you could just palm them off with whatever piece of shit that you didn't want. And I mean, that, that level of, of a rethink about you know, about what is the point of the spear was still, the point was lost there in the, in the 90s. I think post 9-11, uh, we've become a much more high tempo, you know, they've had to experience, particularly special forces, the, the high tempo, tough combat experiences. And, and we've got now a kind of a military generation of very, very seasoned uh, war fighting men and women and they're bloody good at what they do and they're respected for what they do. I, I think I think from what I hear anecdotally, there is some strain on on many of those after those multiple deployments to Afghanistan and elsewhere. And and I think that's going to be a, a, a cost that we're going to have to bear up and we need to support those troops really well and recognize that not even special forces people are new to the strains of, of what they go through. Uh, what's going to happen next? Who knows? Are we going to find ourselves in a conflagration over North Korea on a scale unlike anything we've seen since the Second World War? Who knows? But um, the individuals of the you know, it's army that I know best, I, I am impressed by them. I could easily tell you otherwise, 
if I wasn't impressed by them, I'd be happy to say that, but I am impressed by them. And, and I, I see enormous value in the, just the, you know, the human strengths, uh, the fundamental decency of the Australian soldier. You don't want to put too high, you know, praise on it. They're going to be grubby little characters from time to time, but by and large, <laughs> the level of professionalism and, uh, and leadership and courage and all the right things you want to see in a military force are basically what I saw. But we're a small army and we play in big games. We're well, medium-sized army, I suppose. We play in theatres where there are big wars and we need to be conscious of attrition and, um, and, and also recruitment and looking after those when their combat phase is uh, winding down. Well, Hugh, you've had an incredible frontline career with a rare perspective on our military and those who serve in it, and you've openly detailed your early life and your career and all your thoughts in your book, Minefields. We've only scratched the surface today, and I do encourage everyone listening to go and look up a copy. Good on you, Alex. It's been a great pleasure. That was my conversation with Hugh Remington. His new book, Minefields, is out now. You can follow Hugh on Twitter at Hugh Remington. You can follow us on Twitter too at LOTLpod. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast in your app of choice to get all veteran conversations on Tuesdays and bonus episodes on Fridays. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>